Let's just pray for a moment together. Father, we, we gather as people singing your praise. And we take a moment now just to reflect on the reality of who you are and your worthiness of praise. The wonder of your love, your justice, your mercy, the amazement of your creative genius, and the grace at work through the redemptive plan made possible through Jesus Christ. So, Father, now just, if we could just slow down for a moment and just reflect and celebrate and worship. Now, as we begin this journey through one of the Gospels, I pray that in new and different ways, we would see the amazing work that you are doing through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, good morning. Good morning and happy new year to you. You guys recovered? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Just one person, but that's good. So uh, <laughs> my name is George Davis. Thank you for joining us as we start this new year. And as we start this new year, as you can see, we're also starting a new series entitled Follow. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, the New Testament gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible in hard copy on a mobile device, or, or if you don't have one, I encourage you to uh, use the one in the pew rack in front of you, Mark in the New Testament. And as you're turning to Mark chapter 1, I want to begin by making two just this brief observations about the cultural moment at which we live, because this will lead into how we start talking about Mark. The first cultural observation that I, that I want to make is this. We live at a cultural moment that encourages us to be busy, right? I don't know about you, but it, I mean, even this week, for, for some of us, if, did it feel like, you, right, you get back uh, kind of out of the holiday swing and then everything just hits overdrive once the new year starts? If you Back into that rhythm, some of you, of course, aren't back to school yet, but once you hit that, everything just goes back into fifth gear, it feels like. And one of the realities of our cultural moment that I, I think in fosters busyness is the simple fact that you, we live at this amazing moment in time where we have incredible access to information and connection, right? I mean, the things that I can do with my phone particularly after my sons show me how to do it, <laughs> right? They're just absolute, I mean, the power that I, I, I mean, and, I, and, and frankly, I don't, I don't know what I do without my phone or my Surface book. I'm so tied to them. I mean, we, we live, I mean, I, and it's, it, hear me, this is just an exciting, incredible moment at which to be alive. But I also think with, with the access and the possibility of such information and the access to such connection, isn't it the case we... We also at, at times feel the pressure. You've got to keep up, right? You need to stay connected. I mean, I, I'm out and about and I feel like I need to check my phone, need to check messages, need to check email and just, you know, go out to lunch and I'm, grab a few seconds and just kind of keep up to date. I don't want to miss out on anything. And, and not surprisingly then, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it feels like we feel greater pressure to multitask. And we, right, we get accustomed to that. Just stand out in the lobby and watch people talking and groups of people. And at some point, somebody pulls out a phone. We're talking, but maybe, you know, I've got a text I need to send or you just reminded me of something I needed to do. And 
So this, we, we live in a moment, a cultural moment that due to technology and other factors just encourages busyness. And I'm not, hear me, I, I love this technology. I love that, the time in which we live, but we also need to recognize it encourages us. You've got to keep up. You've got to stay connected. You've got to, you know, follow all this information. And we try to also cram as much of that stuff into our lives as possible. Of course, sometimes uh, attempting to do too many things at once, attempting to multitask can truly get us into trouble. Yesterday morning, I was jogging in downtown Harrisburg, and I ran across this sign on City Island. Stop, do not play Pokemon Go while driving. <laughs> I, it's, it's only come out recently. I, I assure you, once I passed that sign, I started paying much better attention to the cars on City Island, right? What are, what are these people doing? So one of the things I want you to see as we start Mark's gospel is just a simple observation. You and I, we live at this moment that encourages us to, you know, keep track with lots of things, stay connected with lots of things. Not surprisingly, author Alan Noble says we we live in a distracted age, right? We live in, man, it's easy just to bounce from one thing to another. You even know that personally, right, at times when you're online and you're kind of clicking through different things and boom to this, boom to that. So we live in a moment that encourages us to be busy, that overloads us potentially with lots of information. The second cultural observation I want to make is this. We live at a time where we are encouraged to be true to ourselves, right? In the midst of all the busyness and all the different opportunities and cultural messages we get, I think one thing that, that's reinforced in our culture is if, if you want to make sense out of life, if you want to find purpose and meaning, you've, got, you've kind of got to look within. You've got to be true to yourself. You know? And So some of you might even say, I'm at this crossroads in my life right now, and I'm just trying to figure out who I am. How, do you, how can I be true to myself and what my life's supposed to be about? Interestingly, uh, author uh, David Foster Wallace <laughs> wrote this in one of his novels. He said this, everything around me supports my deep belief that I'm the absolute center of the universe. So I live at a time, you live at a time, we live at a time that encourages us to be busy, to keep up with all the information around us and stay connected. And, you know, there's a lot of good to that. And we also live at a time that says, if if you're going to really figure out how life works, you've got to start by looking within. Now, I bring up these two observations about our culture, our moment in time, because in a real sense, as we begin our journey through Mark's gospel, Mark challenges those assumptions right at the beginning. To show you what I mean, let's now come to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And here's here's how Mark's recounting of the life of Jesus Christ begins. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, in reality, this, this, this is Mark's thesis statement. This is the big idea. This is what he's going to be telling us, the story of Jesus and who he is. And so over the next few weeks as we go through this book... We're going to follow Jesus in northern Israel, going around Galilee, what he says, what he does. We're going to see how he interacts with people, how he invests in those followers, those disciples around him. See how he deals with those who are his critics. And then we're going to see him begin moving toward Jerusalem. And along the way, he's going to tell us that his life mission 
means that he must die a sacrificial death. This is the story Mark is going to tell, the story of Jesus. And as he tells the story, he wants us to see that this is good news. Now, it's not simply good news because Jesus was an amazing teacher or an amazing public figure or, or, uh, you know, simply a leader of a renewal movement. This is good news specifically because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So it's good news because of Jesus' identity. Now, as Mark introduces us to Jesus, notice the way this passage is translated. The beginning of the good news, and that word is, is, is really gospel. That's what gospel means, good news. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Now, in Greek, you could actually translate this Jesus Christ. And the reality is we often, when we hear Jesus Christ, we think of, you know, Christ is a last name, George Davis, you, you know, or whatever your name is, and you have a first name and a last name, so Jesus' last name was Christ. But you need to understand that originally Christ isn't a name, it's a title. So it is appropriate here to translate this this way, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, that is, Jesus the anoint, anointed one. This is what Mark is going to tell us about. I want you to see who Jesus is. I want you to understand his identity. And once you understand who he is, you're going to see this is really good news. Now, a moment ago, I, I said what, G, what Mark is saying here challenges some of our cultural assumptions. And, and let me just show you what I mean by that. As I mentioned, you know, we, we live in this busy time, right? You and I, we encounter a lot of information. Some of us more so than others, but you keep up with you know, online and through different ways. We, we encounter a lot of information during our week. And, and when, when Mark says this is good news, it's kind of like, well, okay, I get it. I get a lot of good news during the week. I keep up with people. Somebody had a great day. They post about it, a new restaurant. You know, it's great to find out where people are enjoying a good meal or maybe every now and then I love these stories that go viral online and I forward those and enjoy, you know, kind of the feel-good stories that seem to draw our attention and and yet, that's, that's not what Mark means by good news, right? I mean, you think of good news, maybe it's one category. For Mark, when he says good news, here's what he means. Good news is, it's my life will never be the same kind of news. It's life-changing news. It's world-shaping news. In fact, you'll notice he says this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's, a, I think, a, a subtle echo of Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, and in a real sense, Mark is saying it's as radical and life-changing as was the first creation, so too is the radical reality of the new creation that is being made possible through Jesus, the Messiah. Now, this is, this is the kind of good news that life just isn't the same after that. Along those lines, I mean, just maybe a simple illustration. So after I submitted my dissertation at Cambridge for, for my doctorate, I had to go back a few months later for an oral defense. I still remember that afternoon. I sat in this 
sat in this room with two professors, and for two hours they just grilled me constantly, kind of just tearing my work apart. And, and finally, at the end of two hours, one of the guys, one of the professors looked at me and he said, okay, thank you, Mr. Davis, we're done, you can go. And I walked out of there, and I'm like, what just happened? And I still remember walking through downtown, I still, man, it's so vivid in my mind, even, you know, it's 20 years ago, I, walking down Trumpington Street in downtown Cambridge, and I came to this big red phone box, I went into the phone box, I called Rose, my wife, and, and she said, how did it go? I said, I have no idea how it went. Did you pass? I don't know. They didn't tell me anything. I'm an American in a foreign land. I don't get these people. I still don't get these people. And that was a horrible afternoon for me. That is one afternoon in my life I never want to repeat again. Because for multiple hours, I kept wondering, this has been the last four years of my life. Did I, am I done? Are they going to make me do part of it over? What, what are they going to do? You know, what? I, I have no idea. And that evening I was scheduled to have dinner with my supervisor. And I still remember walking up to the front door. I rang the bell and his wife opened the door and her very first word was this. Congratulations. And when she said that, my jaw dropped. <laughs> and she realized, oh, <laughs> she just looked at me and goes, oh, they haven't told you yet. You passed. <laughs> that was good news. You see, it's like, it's like Mark is saying, look, I know, I know your life is filled with busyness and you get bombarded with all kinds of information. But this, this, this is good news. Notice, notice how this term good news is used in the Old Testament version, or, or in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Let me just show you this. This is Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful the mountains are the feet of those who bring, here's that term, good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You see, this isn't just about any good news. This is about, this is about the reign of God and all that comes with it. The radical reality of God establishing his reign. So this is, it's not just any ordinary news that comes across your news feed. This is good news. It's not just helpful information that you take or leave. No, this is a radical declaration of what God is now doing through Jesus, the Messiah. And in using this language, there, there's also, there's an edge to what Mark is saying here. There's even a political edge to what Mark is saying here. And you need to understand part of the background. It's, it appears quite likely that, that Mark is writing from the city of Rome, and he's working with Peter, and he's close to Peter, and Peter's been a great source of him for, for him of information about Jesus. And, and it appears that he's writing then to other people in Rome. Now, in Roman political propaganda, when you, when you talked about good news, you talked about the birth of the emperor, right? This is Augustus Caesar. And, and over time, uh, in Roman political propaganda, the, the emperor is, is treated as, as a god himself. And there's, there are even particular inscriptions and famous references where, where the birth of Caesar is described as good news. So, so for the people receiving this, 
this gospel, when, they, when, they, when Mark talks about good news, the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, you think, well, I'm, I'm part of Rome. Rome is the big boy in town. This is the most powerful empire in the world. And so good news always has to deal with the emperor. And Mark says, no, you don't get it. That may be how you think life works. But that's not the case. So here's, here's Mark's opening invitation to us. Look, I know your life is filled with lots of information, right? I know, I know you can be easily distracted. I know how hard it is to try and keep up. But I want you to slow down long enough to understand what is really good news. What really is transformational news. What really is your life will never be the same because of this kind of news. And I want to show you what that means. Because when you understand who Christ is, it just changes everything. It changes your attitudes. It changes your relationships. It changes how you engage your responsibilities from work to school to family. It changes your outlook, your priorities. It changes how you utilize your resources. It just changes everything. And if you kind of know about Jesus, but you don't, you don't see the radical nature of this good news, all you're dealing with is good information. I'm not bringing you good information. I'm bringing you good news. Likewise, he is saying, and I know you get different cultural messages about how life works and how to make life work. And for us, those cultural messages can say, well, just be true to yourself. Start within. When you're trying to figure out how to make life work, you just begin by looking on the inside. But Mark is saying, no. I don't want you to begin by looking at yourself. When you understand this good news, you understand that to live well, it begins by understanding who Jesus is. Start with the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So this, this is how Mark begins this book. This is how he's going to recount the life of Jesus. He says, I want you to hear this as good news. Good news that changes everything. I want you to understand who Jesus is. And, and as I tell the story, I want you to understand who Jesus is in such a way that you understand what it means to follow him. And those are the two underlying themes throughout the book. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And in different ways, we're going to come back to those themes over and over again. That's what Mark is inviting you to do. I want you to see Jesus for who truly is. And as you see him for who truly is... I want you to understand what it looks like to follow. Now, to help you do that, let me just remind you, we're providing a study guide and making that available. We're also putting resources on hfcinfo.com each week, including like a 90-second video that I did in Israel for each week. You can find those there. Also, just a reminder, we're, we're going through this together. So for those of you that got kids, our, what, what they're getting in Kids Step, what our students are talking about, as well is, is linked to this series. So, for instance, for those of you who have kids in Kids Step, they will come home, hopefully, uh, just with a card that you can use just to extend the conversation about what they've learned. So, for instance, in Kids Step, as they talk about Jesus' baptism, there's a kiddie pool down there that they're using in a very interesting way. So I'll let them describe it for you. 
but I encourage you to have those conversations if you've got kids so that we can truly go through this book together. So Mark gives us this invitation. I want you to see Jesus for who he is, and it's good news. Now, as he begins telling us about Jesus, one of the things that becomes clear is this good news is actually part of a bigger story. And the opening, really the prologue to Mark's gospel, ties the story of Jesus into the bigger story of what God is doing. And let me just show you then three features of that, three features of the good news that are evident in this opening part of the book. The first is, in, in this opening section of Mark's gospel, we understand that there is a new exodus. There's a new exodus. To show you what I mean, look at the next character that we're introduced to, right? We're introduced to Jesus right at the front, and then we go immediately to John the Baptist. Now, let's be honest. John the Baptist is an odd duck in the Bible, isn't he? Right? He's just, I mean, somebody in camel's hair and he eats locusts and honey. Maybe that's high in protein. I don't know, but I, don't, I'm not, I have no interest in trying that out, right? I mean, he's, he's just a different sort of guy. And yet the reality is, as he is presented to us, he really is presented as, as someone in line with the Old Testament prophets. Furthermore, Mark tells us that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, this extended quote is actually a combination of Isaiah 43, of Exodus 23, 20, and Malachi 3, 1. But notice Mark links it specifically with Isaiah, and I think that's intentional here. Because you need to understand, in, in reading the New Testament, when, when authors quote the Old Testament or a line from the Old Testament or allude to the Old Testament, I think it can be helpful not simply to pay attention to the line, but also to pay attention to the context from which that citation comes. And in quoting Isaiah chapter 40, Mark is taking us back to a section of the book of Isaiah that has this powerful theme that a new exodus is coming, Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. Now, one of the things you need to understand that in the history of Israel, the exodus, right, the deliverance from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery, the exodus was in so many ways the defining moment. It was the, the nation-shaping moment. And, of course, centuries later, after they've gotten into the land that was promised to them, they, right, problems emerge, and, and Isaiah comes along, in essence, to say God's judgment is coming. He's one of the prophets that brings a message of judgment, and the nation will find itself in exile, taken to a foreign land. And yet, even though Isaiah has this message of judgment, you get to chapter 40, and the message changes, and it becomes a message of hope. And, and he speaks in terms of a, a new exodus a new moment where God takes his people out of bondage, a new moment where people are delivered from slavery. And interestingly, when you look carefully at the Gospel of Mark, these themes of new exodus actually permeate this book in various ways. And Mark is saying, John is a sign that this new exodus 
is underway. <laughs> now, here's, here's what I find really fascinating about this scene. Remember, by the first century, by the time of Jesus, Israel, right, is already back in the land. Right, the exile has come to an end. The people are back in the land and back in the land of Israel. And yet for many, there was this nagging sense that something was missing. I mean, don't you find it intriguing? I mean, all of a sudden this, this interesting kind of crazy prophet shows up in the middle of the wilderness, the Jordan River, most likely just east of Jericho. It's rugged terrain, and people flocked to go hear him. He's preaching, he's baptizing, people are coming. I mean, it's an arduous journey down from Jerusalem, but people are coming to hear him. They're, they're intrigued by something. They're drawn by something. They're willing to leave the status quo of Jerusalem. They're willing to kind of step out of the normal routine of religious activity in the temple and go see this crazy prophet out in the middle of nowhere. And why is that? I think it's because for many, there, it was, there was still this nagging sense. We're back in the land, but the promises haven't been fulfilled. We still have these deep hopes and dreams for restoration and renewal. Yet in some sense, it still feels like we're trapped, right? We're still under foreign domination. I just think about that for a moment because what it, what it reminds us of is this. It's possible to be at home <laughs> and still feel like you're in exile. In fact, maybe, maybe that's how you feel right now. You know, you would say, you know, on the outside, my life looks pretty good. It looks pretty normal. But there's still this nagging sense that something is missing. I mean, I've got a good job, kind of on my career path as I expected. But I feel exile. In my marriage, in my family, you know, we kind of look good on the outside. We have a great Christmas picture, but, man, I feel something is missing. I feel exile. In my school, middle school, high school, you know, I just, I'm not excited about going back because I just, I feel isolated. I know I'm at a good school, but right now that just doesn't mean, make a lot of difference to me. I just, I feel exile. Maybe you would say, you know what, my life looks good on the outside, but the truth is I'm stuck in certain negative thought patterns or behavior patterns, patterns of addiction. In any way, you know that nagging feeling that something is still missing. I think you know what drove people out into the wilderness to hear this crazy prophet, John the Baptist. And Mark says, the very fact that he is out there is a sign that this new exodus, this ultimate plan of deliverance, of restoration, of renewal, this new plan is now underway. Now, if there's going to be a new exodus, there needs to be a new leader, there needs to be a new king, and we see that in this 
passage as well because as, as we're introduced to John the Baptist, he's out in the desert, he's baptizing people. One of the individuals who comes to be baptized is Jesus. And notice what happens, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, as I said, one of the underlying motives for John writing this book is to show us who Jesus is. And there were all kinds of views about who Jesus was. Still today, there are all kinds of views about who Jesus is. And and here at Jesus' baptism, we, we encountered the divine perspective, right? You are my son whom I love. And we're exposed to the mystery of the Trinity. Now, as this scene unfolds, once again, there are echoes from the Old Testament. I think one clear echo comes from Psalm 2, the the phrase, you are my son. That wording is found in Psalm 2 as well. It is an enthronement psalm that speaks of God and his king and all that that entails. It it, It speaks of the power of royalty and majesty. But interestingly, there's also a second link that I would highlight for you that I think is at work here, and that's a link, once again, with the book of Isaiah. Because when, when, we, hear, when we hear God's voice, I, I'm pleased with you. You're my beloved. In some ways, that, that takes us back, I believe, to Isaiah 42. Let me just read part of Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. And there's that same kind of language. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And of course, that's exactly right what we see dramatically unfold in the baptism. We see the empowerment of Jesus through God's spirit. And I think one way to think about the baptism of Jesus is this. The baptism of Jesus is the anointing of the king. It's the anointing of the king. But instead of being anointed with oil, he is now anointed with God's spirit who will empower him to assume and fulfill his mission, just as Isaiah talked about. But here's where this gets really interesting because What Mark is doing in telling us this is is he's showing how different Old Testament themes come together. Because early on, we're being confronted with the reality that Jesus is the king who comes in power, but he is also, he's also a servant, right? So he's coming as king, but he won't be the kind of king that you might expect. He comes with power, but he also serves. He comes with might, but he will freely lay down his life. He's king, but he comes in an unexpected way. In fact, listen just to further ways in which this coming servant is described in Isaiah 42. 
It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth, right? And so one of the things Mark is going to want you to see is you need to understand Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the one who comes as king, but you also need to see how it's not the way you expect. Because he will reign as king by way of the cross. He will come as the king, but he comes as the one who suffers. And to understand Jesus, you've got to see that those actually do go together. Now, in in using this kind of royal language and using the language of king and rule, I realize that can seem very irrelevant to us, right? Because we don't don't use that kind of language. We have a different political system and our culture works in a different way. Yet, please be attuned to this. The reality is everyone is ruled by something. We may not use this kind of language, but everyone is ruled by something. For some, we're ruled by our desire to succeed. Some of us are ruled by our desire for the approval of others. Some of us are ruled by the expectations that we set for ourselves. And you need to understand that those other things can, that rule us can be very harsh taskmasters, right? In fact, it may sound odd or counterintuitive, but there, there are some of us here that know the harshness of not meeting our own expectations. And some of us know the reality that our biggest critic is ourselves. And you know the pain of not measuring up Everyone's ruled by something. And when you think about that, remember again that Jesus comes as a different kind of king. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now very quickly, there's one other thing I want you to see in this passage. We see a new king who's leading a new exodus. And in leading a new exodus... We also see that there's, there's a new path. The gospel creates a path. Notice what happens immediately after Jesus' baptism. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him there. Now, this is the temptation of Jesus, and in, in the other gospels, Uh, we get more information. In the other Gospels, we get a lot more detail about Jesus' temptation. But what I do want you to notice here is this. Notice what the details remind us of, okay, just for a moment. Forty, desert, wilderness. Does Does that remind you of anything, right? I mean, we think about 40 and wilderness, and it it takes us back to the Old Testament, right? It takes us back to the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And I think what's going on here is that in a real sense, we're seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of Israel's hopes and dreams and Israel's mission. All, all of it is, is, is leading to Jesus and where Israel has failed, Jesus will succeed. And in fulfilling this mission, he's creating a new path, a new way of life for us to join him on. See, the gospel isn't simply good news. The gospel creates a new path. And, and part of what Mark is wanting to do is this. He's wanting us to see who Jesus is, but then he wants us, therefore, to understand what does it mean to follow? What does this path look like? And in different ways, we're going to understand that as we follow the, the stories in Jesus' life, as we see him interact with other people, as we watch the, the growth and development of his disciples and all of the ups and downs along the way. Interestingly, by the time we get to the middle of the book, we'll, we'll see that the, the topic of, of journey or way is, is actually a significant theme for Mark as he talks about discipleship. It's also interesting that in the early Christian movement, one phrase Christians used to describe themselves was this, were people of the way. For instance, look at this passage in Acts chapter 19, uh, taking place during the, the ministry of the apostle Paul. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. Notice this, they refused to believe and publicly maligned what? The way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and, and discussion, had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So for early Christians, as they understood who Jesus was, they also understood that, you know, the gospel creates a new way of life. It creates a new approach to life. The gospel creates a path. And one of the things Mark wants you to do is this. He wants you to engage this book in such a way that you're going to learn what that path looks like. And his question to you is, in understanding who Jesus is, will you embrace this way of life? Now, it's important for us to pay attention to this because we, we already have ideas about what it looks like to follow Christ. If, you're, if you are, have already identified with Christ, you've got a certain conception of what it means to be a follower. Likewise, even if you're not particularly interested in Christ or don't identify with Christ, you still have an understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And Mark wants us to think through this carefully. For instance, I may think, you know, if I'm following Jesus, my life is supposed to be easy, right? I, I, when I became a Christian, I thought that meant God was for you. So my life is supposed to be easy. It's supposed to go according to plan. Everything is supposed to fall into place. Or maybe you feel like, if, you know, if I'm following Jesus, I'm supposed to have insider information about my life. We're supposed to be more clued in to where our life is going and what it, what it will entail. I'm supposed to have insider information about what my life will look like. Everything will be clear. Or maybe you would say, you know, I feel like if, if I'm a follower of Christ, if I pray hard enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I do the right things, then, then God is going to just make sure everything falls into place like I want it to. Or maybe you would say, I thought, you know, if I'm a Christian, 
I can't make any more mistakes because God's spirit's in my life and every now and then I just feel like such a failure. However, as we go through the gospel of Mark, we're going to see that's, that's not what the path looks like. That's not what the journey looks like. You may think it's easy, but it's going to be very clear for the disciples. Following Jesus at times just makes your life more complicated. It wasn't easy. Maybe you think I'm supposed to have insider information, but they, they, they had no idea what was going to happen or where their lives would lead. It didn't go as they expected. Maybe you think, I'm, I thought if I'm a follower, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to always get it right, but, but that wasn't the case. We're going to see the ups and downs, the mistakes along the way that are part of this journey of following Christ. And Yes, it may not be what you expect, but we're also going to see this path leads to the life that only Jesus gives. This path leads to the life that is truly living. This path leads to the life that is truly life-giving. So Mark says, this is the story I want you to hear. It's really good news. Do you need someone to follow? He's a new king. Do you feel exiled or in bondage or like something is missing and you need to experience new freedom? He's leading a new exodus. Do you simply need to know what living well looks like? He is creating a new path. And that is good news. Let's pray together. Father, as we start this journey through Mark's gospel, I thank you for the reality that over the course of this book, Mark is going to confront us really with who Jesus is. Father, I pray we'd be willing to pay attention to that. I pray we're going to be willing to see the power the majesty, the grandeur. But Father, that we will also be willing to see the suffering and his work on our behalf and the compassion in the heart of Christ so that we realize that we can truly trust him. And, and as we see who he is, I pray that in new and different ways we're going to be drawn into this path of following. That is... We watch the disciples. Seeing certain things in their lives is going to help us think through next steps in our own, this, this journey of what it looks like to follow you. Father, I pray for those here who have yet to start this journey, that they would be open to looking at Jesus clearly and hearing the invitation of this book. In Jesus' name.